in your Bible. We read again this morning, Judges chapter 8, and the portion of the text only from verse 13 through verse 21. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle before the sun was up and caught a young man of the men of Succoth and inquired of him and he described unto him the princes of Succoth and the elders thereof, even three score and seventeen men. And he came unto the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, with whom ye did upbraid me, saying, are the hands of Zeban Zalmona now in thine hand that we should give bread unto thy men that are weary? And he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. And he beat down the tower and slew the men of the city. Then said he unto Zeba and Zalmunna, What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? And they answered, As thou art, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. And he said, they were my brethren, even the sons of my mother. As the Lord liveth, if ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you. And he said unto Jether, his firstborn, up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared because he was yet a youth. And Zeba and Zalmona said, Rise thou and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. Gideon arose and slew Zeba and Zalmona and took away the ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Turn with me in your hymn book, please, and stand with me once again. Sing number 1134, 1134. He reigns, the Lord, the Savior reigns. 
sing to his name in lofty strains. Let all the earth and songs rejoice and in his praise exalt their voice. Deep are his counsels and unknown, but grace and truth support his throne. Though gloomy clouds his way surround, justice is there, eternal ground. In robes of judgment, lo, he comes, shakes the wider and cleaves the tombs before him birds devouring flare the mountains melt the seas retire his enemies with sore dismay fly from the sight and shun the day then lift your heads ye saints on high and sing for your redemption's night they can be seated When God sends a teacher, payday will come. It has been my attempt in these days to bring an exposition of our text here in Judges chapter 8 by extracting from its record the illumination of the three descriptive types or classifications of sinners. Three descriptive types of rebels. Three descriptive classifications of disobedient. All recorded for our attention here in this text. I have hoped in these message to, messages to call all of our hearts, saint and sinner alike, to the solemn reminder of the absolute certainty and infinite tragedy of God's consuming judgment against sin and against sinners. None will escape. Notwithstanding the inviolable certainty of that truth, sinners continue unrelenting 
in their quest to avoid it. Sparing no pains, sparing no cost, sparing no powers, and all with the vain delusion that they will at last somehow escape the judgment of God against their rebellion. Such is the folly of the fallen heart. In that first message, we saw in that Midianite horde a classification of sinners who think to escape the sure judgments of God by running away. And in that message, I suggested to your heart some of the things to which men flee. Some of the places to which they run away in their foolish expectation. And how that they rest, the word securely is used in our text. How they find security in their vain and delusional hopes to run away. And then in the message on last week, I look with you at another classification of sinners, those in the sons of Penuel who hope to escape the judgment of God and remain in their disobedience by hiding. Hiding in the towers of their own carnal making. And again in that message, I suggested to you some of the towers into which sinners commonly flee. There are many others that I did not name and could have, but time prevented me. Those who seek to escape the judgment of God by hiding. In both of these messages we saw, however, as we shall yet see again in the men of Succoth, that all of their efforts were useless. All of their inventions proved only to give space for their own delusion. All of their hopes were vanity and collapsed under the weight of those sure purposes of God to say it in brief, Gideon came. Gideon came. Now here today I want to set before your attention yet another, that final, a third general classification of sinners who imagine themselves to divert the judgment of God against their rebellion by cunning. Some thought to escape by running. Some by hiding. But these think themselves to be safe by their own cunning. We see this in the sons of Sukkah. Verse 5. Listen to verse 5. And he said unto the men of Sukkah, Give, I pray, ye loaves of bread unto the people that follow me. 
for they be faint, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the princes of Sukkah said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thine army? And Gideon said, Therefore, when, when, when the Lord hath delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. It may not be so readily observable in the words only of this record standing alone, but the universal consensus of Bible scholars studying all the known sources of historical sources of this tribe and of their lot, their times, all of these things, it is observable that the men of Sukkoth, because of the situation of their tribe and the status of their people, they had formed some kind of a tenuous alliance. Or if you prefer to call it a voluntary submission to their Midianite oppressors. A pack, if you will, whereby they submit to being pillaged and abused in exchange for some measure of leniency in their treatment. Whatever the exact arrangement looked like, what were the details of its working, we do not know. But this we know. Some kind of an alliance had been made and Sukkoth could not risk being found in violation of their willing subjugation and thus the fear that is expressed in verse 6. Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand that we should give bread unto thine army? We cannot, we cannot risk it. We cannot risk the possibility of them finding out that we have helped you in a war against them. We cannot do that because we have formed in cunning an alliance with them of sorts. These sinners, these rebels, these traitorous brethren had prostrated themselves before God's enemies and formed some kind of a submission and thought by this cunning craft to avoid trouble. And so were unwilling to risk the collapse of their carnal security by wholesale obedience to God. I want to say that again, and I hope you take it in. These Sinners had prostrated themselves before God's enemies 
and formed some kind of a mutual submission and thought by that cunning to avoid trouble and were unwilling to risk the collapse of their carnal security by wholesale obedience to God. Oh, how long could I spend this morning in exposing the plethora, the sheer multitude, the galaxy of ways in which disobedient sinners, even among God's people, ally themselves to God's enemies in the fond delusion that God will not come, that God will not see, that God will not win, that God will not judge. Their safety is secure in their worldly alliance. They have, as it were, pitched their lot with some kind of a cooperating partnership with Satan's horns, depriving God of his due, and all with the false and fatal expectation that this, with whatever it trials, its trials may bring, this will better them and protect them and thereby divert the need for a wholesale obedience to God. Oh, what a deadly delusion is this to cast your lot in the world with God's enemies is an error of eternal consequences. Way back yonder in Israel's history, in Exodus chapter 32, it was just this very question that Moses pressed on those faithless Israelites who rushed headlong into a compliance with their idolatrous neighbors. In, Genesis, in Exodus chapter 32, you remember the story well. When Moses saw, and when the people saw, verse, 30, verse 1 of chapter 32 of Exodus, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto them, Up, oh, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, this man brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. And we're here wanting security, wanting safety. Wanting deliverance. Wanting something to be done. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the gold earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the gold earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and they received them at their hand and fashioned it 
with a graving tool after he had made a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast. And they rose up early in the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now they're saved, they think. And it is in the context of this tragedy. We go to verse 15, and Moses turned and went down from the mount. And the two tables of testimony written on both sides, on the one side and on the other were they written. The tables were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. When Joshua heard the noise of people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is the noise of war in the camp. And he said, It's not the voice of them that shout for mastery. Rather, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. But the noise of them that sing do I hear. It came to pass as soon as they came nigh to the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and strode it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And then we come to those famous words that none shall forget. Verse 26, And Moses stood in the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. They had made a pact with the world. They had compromised the truth of God. They had set up a means for their own security. We're out here in the wilderness. We need help and we don't trust the God of Moses anymore. We're going to make some gods of our own hands and they're going to keep us safe. And Moses stepped down off the mountain with the glory of God beaming about him, beaming about him, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come. It was to this same intent that Joshua, only very recently in the history of Israel, had called them, had called upon them to make their calling and election. Sure, he had called upon Israel to nail their colors to the mast, as we have the expression in English, of God's cause. You remember it well when in chapter 24 of that book, chapter 24 of that book, Joshua details for them their journey and how they had come to the place where they are. He said, I took your father Abraham. He started at Abraham. Then he goes on, verse 4, to Isaac. And he talks to them about Esau and Mount Seir and Jacob and, and Moses and Aaron. And he goes all the way down through their history and what God had done for them. All the way through verse, verse 12 of that chapter. Verse 13 of this chapter, he tells them, I've given you this land. I've given it to you to dwell in. 
I've given you vineyards. I've given you olives that you didn't plant. I've done all of this. Now verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood in Egypt. And ye serve the Lord. And if it ever see, and if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose then. Choose then. This day, this day, choose whom you will serve. Who's on the Lord's side? Said Moses. Said Joshua, choose this day. Whose side are you on? Alliance with the world will not do. But many are the sinners. Many, many, many are the sinners. And oh, blessed Lord, help us. Many of them have their names on a church roll and sit in church pews day after day who hope to court the world's favor and avoid the world's frown by their unholy alliances with them. Unholy alliances, might I add, that set them squarely against the ways of God, as did with these sons of Succoth. Here comes God's army, here comes God's man, here comes God's appointed means of delivering Israel, and they're asking for help! And these men find themselves set squarely against helping them. Because of what? Because of an alliance they had with the world. Men imagine themselves to hold on to the world on the one hand and wink at God's favor on the other. But the law of God is clear, is it not? Matthew chapter 6, at verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness! For no man can serve two masters. Verse 24. No man can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other or despise the one or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And it can't happen. It can't happen. Oh, God is not deceived. God is not deceived. And his judgment is not prevented by your carnal, cunning alliances. John writes to those saints. John writes to those saints for whom love had filled his heart. And he said in 1 John chapter 2, and verse 12, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. 
I write unto you fathers because you've known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have been overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you've known the father. I've written unto you fathers because you've known him that's from the beginning. I've written unto you young men because you're strong and the word of God abideth in you and you've overcome the wicked one. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I'm writing to you, he said, because I love you. Fathers, sons, Wives, I'm writing to you because I love you. I'm trying to tell you, don't love the world. Don't make any pact with them. Don't make any allowance for them. Don't love the world. God's demands are clear throughout this Bible. And here, Gideon's request is clear. It's easy and it's earnest. But... But their alliance with the world, with God's enemy, held sway over their souls and provoked the wrath of God by their vile rejection of his cause and of his servants. Just by way of something of a sidelight, I've had a conversation with two different people this week. Didn't intend it. Spontaneous conversation. Days of persecution are coming. If God doesn't deal in his mercy as our brother prayed earlier, pled at the throne, pleading God turn us. If God doesn't please to turn us, persecution is coming. And I'll ask you, with whom will you identify? I told you of a conversation, I think, privately at the dinner or somewhere. I shared with some of you of a conversation I had with a young lady at Pensacola College recently. We talked about the days ahead and the difficulties, especially in her field of nursing. Persecution coming, and I asked her straight up, what are you going to do? Are you going to stand? Or will you make a pact with the world? But now I ask you this morning, was God's judgment evaded by their alliance? Did their cunning devices succeed? Will Gideon conquer? Will he make good on his threat? Or was it just vain boasting? Oh, before we look at our text again for those answers, can I just tell you, God never fails in his word. The wheels of God's justice may turn slowly, but they will roll infallibly. 
all hear the stark message, if you will. Hear the stark message. The warning of the psalmist in Psalm 9 and verse 15. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. Verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executed. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hand. God will not be mocked. And then there's that wonderful word. Hagion. Higion. The Hebrew word, I looked it up. and It's a word for a musical note. If you have a marginal reading in your King James, it says meditation. That's a place for meditation. But what the actual, the word actually means, it's a, it's a musical sense, a very mournful, doleful musical note. And it's used in the worship in Israel to indicate that this is a place to stop and take the deepest reflection. And it's put right there at the end of verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executes. Contemplate with the deepest sense of thought. Oh, the judgment of God. The psalmist again way over, way over in Psalm 141. The psalmist said in verse 9, Keep me from the snares which they've laid for me and the gins of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets whilst that I with all escape. Oh, when you create your alliances with the world, my dear sinner friend, you're doing nothing but stitching together a net for your own entrapment. Notice with me. I answered the questions that I asked before. Did Gideon just boast? Or did he make his judgments good? Did he come? Did God execute justice after all? Notice with me that in all of the judgments... This is our third message now. This is our third classification of sinners we've considered. But in all of those, in all of the judgments meted out in this record, none exceed the horror and graphics of those laid out for these men of Sucker. As if their crime is in some way more vile, more reprehensible in the eyes of God's perfect justice. Notice with me the words chosen by God's Holy Spirit to put into the mouth of God's servant Gideon. Verse 7. Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Zeba and Zalmun into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. That word tear 
In the Hebrew, it's the word to thresh, like threshing wheat. It's to tread down like in a harvest. Notice how that same word is used in Psalm chapter 9. Sorry, Psalm chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Oh, Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from them that persecute me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces, while there's none to deliver. That's the picture here. That's the word the Holy Spirit gave Gideon to respond to these sons of Succoth. He said, when I come back, I'll tear you to pieces. Choose again in Psalm 35 and 15 if you want it. But notice what they said. He said, I'll tear you. I'll tear your flesh. That was an interesting word study. That word flesh right there in Hebrew. It literally means, and I couldn't at first until I consulted with my helper. I couldn't quite understand the connection. didn't understand why the word was even used here. Because the root word simply means rosy and fat. (laughs) Rosy and fat. God said, I'll tear your rosy, fat flesh off of you. I will rip apart from you the one thing that your cunning plot was designed to protect. Do you hear me? God said, I'll rip off of you the rosy fat flesh that you thought to protect by your cunning. Whoa, sinner, listen to me. He said, I'll do it with the thorns of the wilderness. And I don't get into botany with you. You get an Unger's dictionary and look for yourself. There was some fierce, horrendous thorns grew in those places. And Gideon said, when I come back, I will have the hands of these princes in my hands. And you'll see them. And when I do, I'll rip the flesh from you with the thorns of the wilderness. This won't be a slow, easy judgment. I mean a fast, quick, and easy judgment. This will be a slow, terrible judgment. Verse 16 tells us he took, took the elders. That Hebrew word means to be, to catch, to freeze a thing. (laughs) I mean, they're moving along. And all of a sudden, God will freeze them. They'll go no further. Catch them. He caught them. And he ripped the flesh off of them. And here's that wonderful word that I chose to use for the title of this entire series. Verse 16. And with them he taught. 
the men of Sukkoth. And if you have a marginal reading in your blessed old King James Bible, he says he made them to know. Now you understand, you teachers, we got a lot of teachers. You teachers understand there's a difference between teaching and making to know. (laughs) Your teaching might be ignored. But when you make them to know, that goes beyond just teaching. And I tell you that when God sends a teacher, you won't be truant. And you'll do your lessons and you will know. They learned, listen to me, they learned nothing apparently from Moses in the wilderness in that story. Apparently they learned nothing from Joshua and his conquest of Canaan. Apparently they learned nothing in their recent history from Deborah and Barak in chapter 4 and 5 of this very book in jail nailed to the, to the floor a spike to the head of God's enemies. Apparently they learned nothing from Moses, from Joshua, from Deborah and Barak. They learned nothing from the wholesale slaughter of by miracle of God just the very night before this conversation. They learned nothing. They learned nothing. Oh, can I tell you, it seems this morning that the sinner never learns. So God sends a teacher. They won't do their lessons on their own. So God sends a teacher. Can I tell you that when God sends a teacher, he sends a teacher whose classes cannot be skipped. He sends a teacher whose curriculum cannot fail. He sends a teacher whose tests cannot falter. He sends a teacher whose results are guaranteed. Even if it requires that the flesh be ripped off his students. God's judgment cannot be evaded by cunning. Oh, here's another lesson. Here's another lesson may I give you. I hope you'll not miss it. Many. Oh, may every sinner, every sinner who's listening to me learn this well. When godly, when God finally moves in judgment, there'll be no shortage of witnesses to guarantee the lesson. Look at verse 13. And Gideon the son of Joash returned from battle before the sun was up and caught a young man of the men of Succoth. And what did that young man do? He inquired of him and he 
described. And again, I love the blessed old King James Bible, those old marginal readings. I don't know why they put them in the margin. Why didn't they just put them in the text? That word describe in your margin says he writ. <laughs> he wrote them down. He wrote the names down. <laughs> he wrote their names down. And there were 77 of them. You listen to me? I'm telling you that when God gets ready to move in judgment, there'll be no shortage of witnesses. Get in, caught one. Caught a witness. Said, I'm interested in the leaders, the Sukkoth. He said, yes, sir. I got them. I know their names. And he wrote them down. Oh, here's the treachery of sin. Sinners turning on sinners to guarantee their punishment. You hear me? Sinners turning on sinners to guarantee their punishment. God will not be short of witnesses to execute his judgment. Said Rogers in 1615, Now if the Lord spare not great ones, let all fawning flatterers, which no doubt this man was probably at one time one of the fawning flatterers among the men of Succoth. That's where he was. And, and uh, dear old Rogers said, Let all fawning flatterers who seek such and willingly offer themselves as instruments of oppression because they look to be safe under their wings from punishment. Let all such fools fear, for their patrons shall not shelter them. However they think otherwise, but their own patrons shall surely turn them over to their greatest horrors to save themselves. Sinners testifying against sinners to guarantee their judgment. Oh, I think of that thought, not necessarily those very words, but I think of that thought, thought every time I hear some fool, and I've heard it so many times, some fool sinner say, well, if I'm going to hell, it's all right. All my friends are going with me. <laughs> you think they're going to be friends in hell? They'll stand in the judgment day. Testify to God of everything you've done. Verse 6, the word said. The princess of Succoth said is in the singular in the Hebrew. That's an interesting thing. That word is in the singular. That means that there was only one person who gave answer to Gideon. One person in the singular. Somebody said. But God knew all 77 of them. Huh? <laughs> you hear me? 
God always finds out the 77 hiding behind the one voice of a spokesman. And when judgment came, he found all 77. It's no longer in the singular. It was in the singular in that verse, verse 14. Sorry, verse uh, 6. But God always finds his 77 hiding behind the voice of a spokesman. Oh, sinner, listen to me. Never you think to hide in a crowd. Our God warns in Exodus 23 and verse 2, Thou shalt not follow after a multitude to do evil. You think, well, I'm in the crowd. God doesn't see me. He just sees the crowd. No, God sees you. And in this place, all 77 got their name writ on this list when Gideon rode into town. The prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 17 and verse 12, Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them and they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff in the mountains and before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Behold, it even tied trouble. And before the morning, he is not. Hmm. I want to warn the sinners this morning, all classes of sinners, that God's judgment on sin is not just reserved for nations as nations. It is not just reserved for corporate bodies as corporate bodies, states, cities, or even churches. But rather, the judgment of God from this text is for every man, Romans 14, 12, every man shall give an account of himself to God. Every man, every man, every man. One commentator said here in this text that I read, for the first time in this whole record, we're given a glimpse said this commentator, into the kind of atrocities that these barbarous hordes had been committing for seven years. Gideon asked him, he said, what did those men look like? What did those men look like that you slew in the caves? Hmm. And Tabor, verse 18, then said he to Zeba and Zalmona, What manner of men were they 
whom they whom ye slew at Tabor. This is the kind of thing that had been going on for seven years. And that text gives us a view into it. Simeon described this this Midianite hordes for seven years. He said they had been a kind of predatory warfare that annually devastated the whole land. But God knew every one of them. And when 15,000 of them escaped, God sent his army. Go get them. And in the path of it, we found these sinners that thought to escape the judgment of God by their cunning. And God allowed him to find a little fellow that could write all 77 of their names down. These, these, by the way, it's an interesting story. I can't get into it today. Elaine and I had a long discussion of it the other night. These were slain in their hands. And Gideon says to these two princes, what did they look like? They said, they looked like you. And he responds to that. He said, that's because they were my brethren. And not just brethren in the national or tribal sense. But notice the very specific wording of the Hebrew. They were my brethren. The sons of my mother. These were his brothers. And they had slain them, not in a manly manner, as in open warfare. No, no. Butchered. A kinship that was closer than mere fidelity. A kinship of brotherhood of the closest possible kind. But how did Gideon know how did he know it was these men? How did he even know about the incident? <laughs> Tinkerbell and I talked about that the other night. How did he know all these things? I don't have the answer to that for you today. But I'll tell you what I can tell you. God knows everything. God knows Everything. Judgment has come and God knows everything. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people. Insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware of all the living hypocrites, for there is nothing covered, verse 2, 
that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whosoever ye have spoken, whatsoever, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. That's which is spoken in the ear and cause it shall be proclaimed from the housetop. One of my favorite texts to preach from in the jailhouse is Revelation chapter 20. I saw the dead, small and great, verse 12, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that are written in the books according to their works. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. God has a record of it all. And your cunning will not erase it. Gideon came, and when Gideon came, he knew everything. And he got the names, every one of them. And he took them out in the wilderness and he tied them up as they did in those days, as horrible as it sounds to us today. He literally entangled them, wrapped them in these horrible thorns from out of the wilderness and dragged them back and forth until the thorn had torn the flesh off of their bodies. And they lay and groaned till they died. God knows. God sees. God records. Oh, sinner, look to Gideon here and learn before he sends your teacher. Turn with me in your hymn book, if you will, please, and stand with me. We've sung this hymn already a couple of Lord's Days. I want to sing it again. Take the message to your heart. 137, would you stand with me and sing 137. The day approaches, O oh my soul, the great decisive day, which from the verge of mortal life shall bear thee far away. Another day more awful dawns And Lord the Judge appears Ye heavens retire before His face 
and sinky darkened stars. Yet does one shore preparing our one precious hour remain. Rouse then my soul with all thy power, nor let it pass in vain.